Welcome to the Pergo Podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Ringard. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. So I have a little bit of a bio here in front of me. It says that uh, you served as the CEO of U.S. Renal Care, a business that you founded in 2000 uh, and grew to more than 700 dialysis centers nationwide, uh, which is very impressive. You currently serve as the CEO of MindPath, which provides mental health care through telemedicine and in-person visits in over 40 locations. And something that I learned totally new that I'm really interested in finding out how you got into this is you breed and you train cutting horses. Is all that correct? That's correct. That's yeah, updated cutting, information. Cutting horse, cutting horse business seems to be the uh, full-time job. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. So um, I've heard that you're from this area, but I know very little about you. So I'm eager to learn kind of how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so i, I Born and raised in Paragould, Arkansas. Um, my father moved here uh, in the 50s, uh, owned the Goodyear and General Electric store right down here on 2nd and Main. Um, and across the street where First National Bank's drive through is was Bringard Recapping, where they recap tires. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I was a part, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a product of a mixed family. My mother was from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, had two children. Her husband died at a very early age. Mm-hmm. He also worked for General Electric. My father had a had a wife that uh, died at a very early age, mm-hmm. had two children, um, and then they met and had two more children. So I was kind of a part of a Brady Bunch uh, here. <laughs> I was the last of six. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I grew up here in Paragould. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a St. Mary's uh, alumni, mm-hmm. um, and then later out of the Paragould, Paragould School District. So your dad, you said y'all moved here from, where was it again? I was born here. Okay, you were born here. Okay. I was born here. He, um, so uh, my father was 49 when I was born. So, okay, okay. So he was, gotcha. he came out of World War II, was um, originally from St. Louis and from Kansas City. I think he was living in South Carolina at the time, and an opportunity to buy this General Electric Goodyear store came up, um, and that's what brought him to Paragould. Okay, uh, and so that he was, was a businessman then. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And then when you uh, came out of St. Mary's, what grades did it go to back then? Uh, six. Six, six. And you yeah. went straight into Paragold. Went to, went to Paragold Junior High. Yeah. It was the junior high at that time and the location kind of behind my house, the big old brick, I think right Majestic. Seventh and Seventh and, uh, and, and Kings High, or Seventh uh, and Court. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so tell me what that building was like. So we've talked about that a few times on the <laughs> podcast. And I. I have a very romantic view of that building, which I'm sure it did not feel quite as amazing when you were in it. But tell me what it was like for you going to that building, like what it was like on the inside. Because I'm trying to get even a visual of what that place was like. So coming from, you know, coming from St. Mary's, you know, we had three classrooms. So first and second grade together, Mm -hmm. third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Okay. And then moving into the junior high, uh, where I knew I had some friends that obviously didn't go to, to, to St. Mary's, but moving into this huge building with, I mean, probably three or 400 kids in it was, you know, was, was pretty special. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. I lived in the neighborhood, so I walked uh, to, uh, to school every day. Okay. Where'd you live at? at that I time? lived on West Poplar Street, just ah, two or three blocks yeah. up the road here, right, yeah, yeah. right in the little S curve. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a neighborhood with, 10 or 15 kids and had the idyllic uh, childhood uh, neighborhood experience. Um, when you say idyllic neighborhood experience, like, tell me what that was like. I mean, you know, literally, we, we, there were 10, 15 kids. We were all within four or five years of each other. Mm. Um, 
you know, uh, back then with Paragould, <clears throat> you know, uh, no cell phones, yep. parents worked, kids in the summertime kind of were on their own. I used to ride my bicycle from West Poplar Street to Fox Hills every day. Wow. We would ride our bicycles all the way out to Francis Bland Park when it very first opened up. Parents Jeez. didn't know where we were. We, <laughs> you know, we had our own little baseball park in, in, in our neighborhood. Um, you know, it was just – it was perfect. I mean, it was – you know, we, we played in the streets – Parents kind of kept up with each other's kids. It was it was it was pretty cool. We've had um, Clifton Garmouth on here yeah. recently. He's oh, yeah. talked about it that way. Steve talked about it that way. Um, We're all part of the same generation. So, okay, yeah. Barry Davis talked about it that way. Sandlot, yeah. Yes. Sandlot yes, man. So literally, our neighborhood had a Sandlot team. Mm-hmm. We had a. There's a. There's a. I can take you to it right now. There's a small little field behind. Um, a couple of houses on West Poplar Street that at the time felt like a baseball park. It's tiny now. Um, we had a mound. Um, there was an older gentleman that lived on Poplar Street, Norman Willie, who was one of the main sponsors of the American Legion team. And um, he literally would build a baseball field for us, and we would mow the, 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 the baselines, and we had a little pitching mound. And that's still there? Like the, the field is still the there? The field is still back there. Still, it's still back there. You wouldn't know what it is. Yeah, uh, sure. But it's in a, it's in a little alleyway. The infield was on one side of the alley, and the outfield was on the other. Hmm. And um, a home run was when you hit the house. <laughs> um, and if you, I don't, awesome, I'm man. sure the house has yeah. probably been covered over, but it was that asphalt siding. Yeah. And there would be dozens of holes in this asphalt <laughs> siding, and no one cared. It was, you know, they, it was they were part happy. of it. It was part of it, right? It was, <laughs> man. It, did you like were were kids pretty much outside all the time, like the way that I imagine it? And so, like you're going to school. Was did you walk to junior high from where you were? I walked to I walked to uh, St. Mary's. I walked to junior high. That's crazy. Yeah. So you're walking to school, and then people are pretty much coming home, and you're outside, right? Yeah, you, I mean, you know, I, I came from a single parent uh, family, yeah. so my my parents got divorced when I was quite young. My father raised me. He worked downtown. Literally three or four doors down down this down the street here, um, and um, you know I, I did we didn't even call to say hey we're home. Um, yeah. You were just home, and um, if you were a good kid, you got your homework done. If you were me, you just ran straight outside and started playing football or baseball or running up and down the road. And in the summertime, you know, um, about the only time you would come in the house is maybe for lunch and then at dinner time, and that was it. And even up until nine ten o'clock at night, you were outside. Man. It was, yeah. And you graduated the Bulldog, right? 1983. 1983. Yeah. Okay, so what were you, I guess you were into sports. What else were you kind of interested in at the time? Like, were you, I guess what I'm curious is, like, when you were coming out of high school, did you have any idea of where you wanted to go, like, career-wise, or, like, were you going to take over Dad's shop? Like, what were you thinking? No, I had no idea. Um so um, I had a brother who graduated from college, but the rest of my family really had not gone to college. Okay. Um, um, I knew that that was something that was important to me, um, and but I really had no idea what I wanted, what I really wanted to do. Uh, I was interested in in finance and business and things like that, but mm. I, at the time I didn't want to be in Paragould, you know, like like mm-hmm. most kids. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get out, um, and. Uh, you know, I think my dad kind of helped me helped me down that road a little bit. Um, you know, I, I I had a job from the time I was ten or eleven years old. I've kind of done everything there is in this town. Um, like what? 
Uh, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, I was I was mowing yards, but, you know, one of the cooler jobs. 10 or 11. I was It's shining. wild to think about, like a 10 or 11-year-old, like today, mowing yards. Oh, I, I, I pushed a mower up and down the streets, and for five bucks would spend an hour and a half, two hours mowing someone's yard. Was that something, was that self-motivated, or like dad's like, okay, you're 10 or 11, you're old enough to mow, That's like you, you need did. to go back? That's just what you did back then. I mean, there, there weren't, there weren't. I don't remember any of my friends that, that didn't have some kind of summertime job and had some kind of responsibility. Wow. But I had a, I had a cool job. Um, you probably have never heard of OK Barbershop. So <clears throat> across the street from where the Capitol is, where the parking lot is, the First National Bank owns, was mm-hmm. another building that was attached to the old white printing company. And below that was two pretty famous things in Perigold. One was Terry's Cafe. The original, well, actually, it's not the original. It was the second. When you location. say below that, you mean it just right below. So where what? the yeah where the where the parking lot is right now was a two story building. Okay. Yes. And on the on the main floor of that, right next door to where White Printing Company is, there were there were two, two, uh, not built. They were all in the same building, but two offices or mm-hmm. two two spaces. One was Terry's Cafe. Now the original Terry's Cafe was in the Capitol Theater on the corner of Capitol Theaters before my time. I didn't know that. And those who are unfamiliar by Capitol Theaters, like now Collins, correct? That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah, that's good. I just want to make sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, an older woman by the name of Beulah, and I should know Beulah's last name, owned Terry's, uh, and it was just a it was a it was a lunch counter. I didn't realize Terry's had been here. Yeah, that long. I thought it was like a '90s thing. So no, no, no. Terry's yeah. is older than me. Wow. wow, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, Terry, Terry's is older than me. It was, it was originally um, on the, um, I guess it would be on the west side of the of the Collins Theater. Now uh, was a door, and there was that was where the cafe, Terry's Cafe, originally was. And there was a barbershop over there. There was a barbershop right next to White Printing Company called OK. Uh, there were two barbers, there are three barbershops in this town. Actually, two barbershops this town that I know of. Harris Barbershop, which was oh, right yeah. down the street here. Jeff Harris. Right? Jeff Harris, yeah. that's right. And they had someone shining shoes, a guy by the name of Chuck. He was one of the first black men in Paragould, the only black family that ever lived in Paragould when I was a kid. Wow. And Chuck was here for, I mean, my entire childhood. And then OK Barbershop um, was up the street here next to white print, the old white printing company. And uh, they had a regular in there, but but they started letting me shine shoes on Saturday afternoons because he would leave. When you were how old? Twelve. <laughs> so how did you get that job? My, so my did dad had an shoes? office. Yeah, so my dad had an office upstairs, and I was constantly looking for jobs. And mm-hmm. so I think I went in there one day and said, hey, you, you need any help sweeping or doing something? And That's so bizarre to me. And you said that was like you weren't abnormal. Like every kid was kind of looking to make a buck somehow. All of my friends were. We, we all had to do something. I mean, some people worked out at the country club picking up golf balls, and as we got older, life. Just looking you know, for some cards. spending money, man, some baseball cards or whatever you were into, right? Yeah, it was, I mean, I think it was spending money. It was staying out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, was, it was staying busy. Um, you, you, know, you, you know, you couldn't sit around all day. There was, there was nothing to do at home. I mean, you, we had three channels on, a, on an internet. You didn't have Netflix, Amazon Prime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. yeah, yeah, so, we, you know, we just didn't have much of a choice. It was just natural for mm-hmm. everybody. And so – um, so you went and worked there, and then your 
you're working where else did you work i'm just curious now because like these are such unique jobs to me i'm like something that mowing the yards you did the you worked at the barbershop where else did you work when you were growing up so i just did a lot of odd jobs but of course a rite of passage in this town back in those days was working for vernon williams um at big star which is now okay. Hayes. man um, so you worked at, at uh big second star. second in maine mm-hmm. um so Josh Agee and I have had this conversation numerous times. I worked times. with Tim. Okay. Well, see, we've had conversations yeah. several times about literally some of the best leaders in our community worked at Big Star. Everybody worked at Big Star. Didn't Danny Ford say he worked at Big Star? Yes, he did. And then, I mean, obviously our mayor for a long time, before this mayor, I Mike Gaskell. Mike Gaskell was my manager. Um, Tim Agee worked for Mike as an assistant manager, and then after I left, later became a manager. Mike, Mike moved out to the Plaza store. But that was all when Vernon still owned it. So um, here's the question about Big Star then. Like, do you, did Big Star just attract people who were already set up to be good leaders because they were already pretty good kids, had a level head on their shoulders, or did they help make them and teach them lessons, or is it both? No, I think, I think it was more the latter. I think it was more that they really taught them. I mean, um, <clears throat> um, Vernon Williams was a hard person to work for. Mm. Um, you, you, there, was no, there was no free ride there. You worked. Um, and you did not make a lot of money, which was a common gripe with all of us back then. I think I made a hundred, a dollar thirty-five an hour is what I was making when I was working. And that was from what years? Uh, gosh, As probably from seventy-nine to eighty-two, okay. eighty-one, eighty-two. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, it was fun. It, you had some really good managers, um, and uh, you know Barry Heston, who still runs Hayes. Yes. We yes. all worked together. Um, That's wild. There's there's a lot of those guys that are still around, and so um, it's like a little fraternity of people that used to work there. Yeah. So my brother Ronnie um, was best friends with Mike. He and Mike were assistant managers at Second Main when they were in high school. Mike became the manager, uh, and that's how I got a job. I actually got a job there when I was 14. Hmm. Uh, So yeah, it was probably probably 77, 78 ish, Um, and I wasn't supposed to be working when I was 14 at that job, Hmm. Uh, but but. But Mike and Vernon allowed me, and so I was there when, um, uh, when um, the Greens bought bought it, mm-hmm. um, and um, that probably would have been in like 1980. I'm guessing mm. you'd have to ask Vernon; she she would know. But uh, probably around 79, 80, Vernon Williams sold it, and then it later sold to Hayes. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, Hayes when you worked there was not where it is today, correct? So Second Main yes, was a store. Yep. You had East Side where it is right now. Okay, and then Plaza was brand new. So okay. that was I think Walmart, if I'm not mistaken, Walmart opened out there in seventy one, seventy two, seventy three, yep. somewhere in there. It's a happening spot. And so that, that was and that was considered to be kind of the creme de la creme. Okay. Uh, place to work. Yeah. I kind of worked in the old one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're working all the way through school, playing some sports, that sort of thing. You eventually you said you graduate in eighty three. 1983. See, I was born, by the way. Great, great year. Thank you. Great year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to bring that up. And so, um, and so you graduate high school. What's the plan? You said you knew you wanted to leave town. So did you leave town? I did. You know, my dad wanted to make sure that I, that, that I, I followed through the college. He got me a job at uh, Emerson Electric, uh, okay. Emerson then. Um, I worked the midnight uh, to seven shift for the summer after I graduated high school, and I worked in InShield, which was where they were pouring hot molten metal. And he knew exactly what he was doing because I came out of that job after three months and said, "I ain't doing that. Don't want to do that. Want to want to go figure College out how to do something different." Good, yeah. 
moved to I moved to UALR, um, went to school there down there with a couple of a uh, uh, couple of friends. Was there for a year and then moved up to Fayetteville and, and ended up graduating from the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. What did you graduate with? A degree in finance. Okay. Corporate finance. All right. And so at that point, what did you envision would happen? Did you think I'm going to start businesses or like where did you go for that? No. <laughs> when I got out of college, I was engaged to Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved. Um, she still had, um, she still had six or eight months to go in her graduate degree. I was a six year person, by the way. It took me a while to get yeah, out of school. It took me, I stretched four into seven. So <laughs> <laughs> I got you beat. I, 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 and mine wasn't even a hard degree. Mine out. was communication <laughs> studies. So. <laughs> I don't understand why these kids are trying to get out in three. I was, yeah, that's <laughs> right, man. <laughs> uh, Tracy was still up there in graduate school and I moved to Memphis and I was originating mortgages. Um, but I was getting married. I graduated in December. Was getting mar- married in July, and I was making about fifty bucks or well, I was making one hundred and fifty bucks a week in Memphis, mm-hmm. and needed a real job. And my sister-in-law, Ronnie's wife, Marlene, uh, was a nurse at what was then Continental Medical Systems on the rehab hospital down in Jonesboro, the big fancy new uh, physical rehab hospital. And she called up and she said, "Hey, they're looking for a, for a marketing." person and i'm like no nah, i've got a i got a finance yeah. degree i'm not going i'm not going to be a drug rep running up down the road mm-hmm. um and i turned them down i turned the opportunity down and two three weeks later my dad's looking at me going okay how are you gonna get married mm-hmm. um ended up taking the interview ended up getting the job um and With no marketing background at that point no no but i'm you know i was a pretty good gift to gab you know I'm, <laughs> i was it's the one thing i do is sell probably all the time so <laughs> Um, you know, it had some success. It was, it was a, it it turned out, um, so it, it turned out that the, the Continental Medical Systems at the time was a public company, but it was, it was owned and operated by a family up in Pennsylvania, the Hortensios, who are personal friends of mine today. Mm. Um, it, it turned out that it was one of those, uh, organizations that I've learned over the years, um, are important that they train very, very good young business and executives. And I didn't realize it at the time what I'd fallen into. You didn't know what was happening in the moment. I didn't know what I was happening. But I was but I was being trained pretty well to run up and down the road and to try to find <clears throat> business um, for them. Um, and had some success. Um, kind of later, you know, after a couple of years, moved out of the marketing side, moved into the operations side, because I kept thinking I really didn't want to do marketing. Mm-hmm. I really didn't want to do sales. And um, and then literally a year or two into that, I got recruited away to move to Houston, uh, Texas, and that kind of started my whole entrepreneurial uh, part of it. So, so at that I, point, you didn't really know there wasn't a lot of starting stuff at that point. That wasn't even really a thought of. No. So, um, you know, Tracy and I were here uh, three, four years. Uh, we moved. Um, we moved it. I called her one day. I took an interview down in down and actually it was a, it was a company based out of New York. They were looking for a VP of operations to run. Um, I think it was about ten centers in in South Texas and a couple in Florida, but they were specifically looking for someone from Continental Medical Systems because of the training. Um, and I got hired, um, and. Um, Without getting into too much detail, there was a lot of regulations changing in the healthcare space at that time, and this was a business that needed to transition through the regulatory changes. Um, 
and I was pretty successful with it, uh, with making the change and actually grew the business in a time when the, the these were outpatient physical therapy centers um, and was pretty successful with it. And the company that I worked for was a company by the name of Metafit of America based out of New York. They had 150, 160 centers. And they put it up for sale. And a company you probably have never heard of called Health South mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> ended up uh, looking at it. And by this time, I had some friends inside Health South that said, hey, did you know your company's for sale? Um, and this is, you know, this is where I made this huge leap. Um, the people working for me in Houston worked for me, not for Metafit. They were my team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metafit had not done a great job of, of kind of running the company, and we were on our own, kind of doing our own thing. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I got it in my head that, hey, I think I could do this. And mm. so I went to, to the CEO and I said, Hey, I want to buy, um, I want to buy these centers in Florida and Texas. And he kind of laughed at me and Jared, I don't have a clue why, but I, I turned around and I said, well, listen, if you don't sell it to me, I'm going to go open my own. Um, and, uh, long story short, ended up, um, connecting, had some, Lawyer friends in Houston that I'd gotten to know, they connected me with some venture capital guys, um, and I ended up buying Metafit of America's operations in Texas and Florida. That was when? Um, you know, that probably would have been in 90, 92, 91, 92, somewhere in there. I was very young, 30, 36, 37 years old. I was four or five million bucks in debt and had yeah. partners that I'd never met, met before. Um and um, and was successful, had a really good first year, and then in pops the Hortensios again. So the Hortensios were the largest rehab hospital com- company in the country with four or 500 outpatient physical therapy locations, and I was their biggest competitor. And so uh, Rocky and Bob um, invited me to come talk to them, and they ended up buying out my investors, and I ended up being partners with them. So I got rolled back into the CMS system, more or less. And then CMS ended up selling to Health South a year or two later. <clears throat> and uh, I broke away uh, uh, after, after, that, after that transaction happened. And the Hortensios were starting up a new company that's still um, a large public company today called Select Medical. And I was employee about number five that got invited to come and help them start it. What were you doing for them? Uh, Tracy and I moved to Tampa, Florida, and I was running all their outpatient business. But when I say running it all, when, we, when, when I got hired, there was literally six or eight centers in the Tampa Bay area. But in two years, we purchased probably over 1,200 centers across 35, 40 states. Wow. Um, so tell me this real fast, and we'll come back. We'll try yeah. to pick it up there. Like, what was needed? What was kind of your your superpower, I guess, that your ability, your gift that allowed you to operate these things so well, to run them so well? Like, because yeah. I'm guessing you were discovering this as you go. Like, I'm, I'm guessing, like, you were growing in self-awareness of, like, hey, I actually can do this. Like, you said that at one point, like, I can do this. Like, what was needed? And even I'm just curious for myself and then for those who are listening who may be interested in one-day business yeah. or, you know, operations, like, what's needed? Like, yeah. what's the key component? It's like, you're, if you're going to be successful at this, you better have these things in place? Yeah, so I, I get asked this question a lot. And, it, and I, at the time, I don't think I knew the answer to it, but I, th- I think I know the answer now is, you know, 
if, if there was a secret, if there's been a secret to my success over my career, <clears throat> and I think it all started right then, it was that I went and associated myself with very, very good people, and I hired very, very good people. Um, and I let and I let those folks do their deal. Um, and, mm. um, you know, I wish I could tell you that, that, that I had some insight. Mm-hmm. That was never the case. I mean, I, I was always a risk taker. Yes. I was a good salesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was always the guy with doctors that, you know, would could talk them into either sending us business or doing partnerships or doing whatever else. But at the same time, I was not the guy that, that really uh, was the operations person that, that, that knew all the ins mm. and outs. But I but I had the opportunity over my career to work with some really, really top-notch people, some top-notch people that are – that are very well known, top notch people that I that I was able to hire. And you talked about like you were able to find these people to put in a team. Like, does that come down to just being a good judge of character? Like, you can just read somebody. Like, or would you say honestly, it's a little bit of that it was luck? I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah, you know. So I I, I was always looking for someone that was smarter than me. Mm-hmm. Number one. So if I was looking for finance professionals or sales professionals or clinical professionals or whatever else, if, if I knew more about the conversation than they did and about the subject, mm. they probably didn't work for me. Mm. Uh, I, was, I was looking for someone that mm-hmm. I was almost going to mm-hmm. have an aha moment with that, okay, I get that. And I think the trick is, you know, uh, the trick for me has always been is, is, is to kind of, um, you know, set the strategy, um, set a vision. Um, figure out, you know, kind of where you're going or where you want to go um, and stay out of their way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, now, you know, there's always times that you have to jump in and, and intervene along the way, but I think my secret has been, you know, hiring good, good smart people. And, and listen, I went through a lot of folks too because I, w- I would hire people that, that Didn't would turn out. out that, yeah. you know, weren't the level that I really needed them to. And I was never shy about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, making a change. And so. It's um, exactly what Danny Ford said whenever he came on when we were asking just about like their business and, and you know, the dealership is just like I hired good people. And sometimes I didn't. When we weren't, we were very quick about if it wasn't a good fit, hey, this ain't a good fit. But he very much like man, you surround yourself with a team, kind of people who are smarter than you and know more than you, and it's huge. It, it, I mean, to me, it's kind of the whole secret. I mean, I, you know, I've not met any. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the very top people in healthcare um, in the world, and I, <clears throat> I was always um, some of the biggest private equity firms, some of the biggest names you can imagine. And I was always walking into a room thinking, I'm fixing to have an aha moment. I mean, this guy's, this guy's about to be like. The, the, the smartest mm-hmm. person I've ever met, most of the time you walk out of the room thinking, hey, they're just like me. Huh. You know? huh. I mean, they got some experience that I don't have. Yes. Um, and and they've got some IQ, but at the end of the day, there's not a big difference between those that have been hugely, hugely successful and, and the rest of us out there. You know, it's just it's whether or not you've been willing to take, take a chance on yourself. And, and risk whether, is the big thing, isn't it? For me, I mean, you yeah. have, you, you got to be willing to take a risk on yourself. Well, because so many people have gr- pretty good ideas, yeah. but they're not willing to yeah. jump on those ideas. It's hard. So my back in my Medifit days, uh, there was a lot of controversy around all of that uh, when I was trying to buy it because Medifit I basically had threatened them and said, <clears throat> either sell it to me or I'm going to go across the yep. street and open it up. Mm-hmm. Turned into a, to a year-long legal battle. I had a, I had a legal bill and law firms mm-hmm. that, that were – um, 
that were way over my head, mm. way. I mean, I had a legal bill that I, 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 I couldn't fathom that I was that I was in debt to a law firm like that. But I, I you know, at the time, I, <clears throat> I was in a meeting in 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 Houston with a private equity firm that owned Metafit, and the 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 very senior level private equity guy from New York you know, basically leans across and he says, look, you're, you're a pretty bright young guy and you're about to screw this up because um, if you go down this road with me, I'll make sure that you never raise a dime in the private equity world. And I'm a kid from Paragould, Arkansas. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded right to me. Um, But I tell, you know, I, I I told him at the time, um, you know, he didn't understand. I had nothing to lose because I had nothing. Wow. I had not tra- – listen, when, whatever it is that I have, um, when I got married to Tracy, yes. it was negative. Um, yes. Does it get – let me ask you this. I've noticed this in my own life. Does it get harder to take risk the more you get because there's more to lose? Or have you found, no, you just got to keep on taking the risk? Well, so, yeah, of course, I think, of course, it is. Okay. I mean, you, you'd almost be foolish not to, yeah. you know, because you get responsibilities. I didn't, we didn't have kids. Yep. Um, you know, I had been broke my entire life. What did I care about being broke? When I walked <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> it's like nothing will change <laughs> if this doesn't work. That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, and I had faith that I'd be able to go out and get a job. But, you know, when you get kids and you get responsibilities and you get a little older down the line, you know, it, of course it gets harder. So then what do you do in that case? Like whenever you've got more to lose, like is it just more of a, more calculations, more calculated yeah. risk? Okay. Yeah. So when I was young, it was, you know, it was throw everything up against Gut the instinct, wall and I'll just yeah. do whatever, you yeah. know. I mean, if I thought I could do something, you know, today, I mean, I still, you know, am associated with, you know, four or five different companies and still invest in in a lot of stuff. And it just becomes much more calculated, Mm -hmm. much more calculated. And, and I'm, I'm very careful about the partners, um, that I'm, that I'm partners with now back, back then, if, you know, these guys that gave me money, uh, to buy Metafit, they were actually the Bass Brothers out of Houston, but I, I didn't know them, um, and um, I would have taken anybody's money. If, if anyone would walk through the door and said, "Hey, I'll give you three, four, five million bucks," I would have said, "No yeah, questions on. asked." Yeah, come on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, life's too short now. Yeah. So. <laughs> so you're down in Florida, and kind of catch us up from there. You said that you uh, the business was bought out, and so you're the, running several so centers. Yeah, Metafit was bought out. Uh, Select Medicals cranked up. They invited me to come down and run the outpatient business. I actually was working with uh, another former Continental Medical Systems person that I knew, Jack Egan, um, and we were off and running, and, and over a couple-year period of time, we, we bought 1,100, 1,200 centers across 30, 40 states, um, and uh, by this time, I had two kids, so uh, Mary Catherine was born in uh, while we were in Houston, and then John was born while we were in Florida, um, and I was on the road five days a week. I was... You know, somewhere across the country, <clears throat> uh, Tracy was stuck in Tampa, and and uh, it seemed to be a pretty heavy weather uh, pattern while we were there. So, because I was constantly getting a phone call if there's a tropical storm or a hurricane mm-hmm. coming in, and I'm like, I can't yeah, come sorry, home. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a couple of years into it, um, they decided that the outpatient business was being operated out of King of Prussia, out of Philadelphia. We had bought a company up there by the name of Novacare that had five or six hundred centers, and they wanted me to go up there and and run the outpatient business from King of Prussia. And 
by this time, you know, Rocky Ortenzio and Bob Ortenzio, two very well-known people today that, that, that uh, uh, very highly respected uh, people. Anyway, Rocky came to me, took me, out to, took me out to dinner in Atlanta and said, I want you to move to King of Prussia. And I said, listen to this to this accent. <laughs> Do you think yeah. this accent yeah. is going to work? Is yeah. going to work in, in <laughs> Philadelphia? And uh and so I said no. Uh we're going to do it. And this is where this is where my story gets strange. Um because I was in Tampa trying to figure out what I was going to do. Still still working for them. Um and and you're pretty much set. You got to that could be a good career at that point, right? Fantastic career. Yeah. yeah. You're safe at that point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, And I had a business development group that kind of ran around the country looking for new opportunities, and they had set up a meeting on a Friday afternoon. I I usually got off airplanes on Friday mornings in Tampa and would spend Friday afternoon in the office with my team. Um, And I got off an airplane, and I walked into a a meeting. There were 15, 20 people in the room, and there was a nice woman was doing a presentation, um, and what she was asking us was, was she ran 1819 dialysis centers in Florida, and she wanted us to do physical therapy on the dialysis patients while they were in the chairs. Hmm. And I, I'm in the back of the room and kind of walk in and kind of not really paying much attention, but I start listening to it, and I'm, all I can think about is, is this is a horrible idea. Uh, I don't know anything about dialysis, yeah. but, I mean, this is a horrible <laughs> idea for us. Yeah. And so I raised my hand and I said, "Hey, I apologize. My name's Chris. I kind of run this little show, and yeah. uh, we're not going to do this." And uh, right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, you know. And one of my BD guys walked up. Everybody's leaving Friday afternoon. One of my BD guys walked up to me and says, "That was rude. <laughs> I mean, that was bad. I've been working on this for like a month, and you killed Just it. Just shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. And so I felt bad. So I so I I asked the the, the lady back to my office and we started talking. And at the time, dialysis, I thought dialysis was done in the basements of hospitals. Mm. You just, it was not that big of a business. I'd never heard of, I just did not heard of the industry that much. But as I sat there and started talking to her <clears throat> and I started asking her business questions and she started answering questions, little light bulbs started going off because I'm thinking, you know, the things that I'm fighting in, in, the, in the business that I'm in are all the positive things that are going on in that industry. Mm. And um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was almost like a desperation for me of, of I got to get out of my problems that I've mm-hmm. got right now running this business and figure out how to get into that. So um, think about this. Um, that would have been in 95-ish, 96-ish. Um, and I turn around and Googled dialysis. Now, when I tell you I Googled dialysis, oh, yeah. Google was brand spanking yeah, yeah, new. Yeah, yeah. Okay? yeah, it wasn't spitting out results like you're getting today. Yeah. That was like the second or third time I'd ever <laughs> turned around to a computer and Googled. Yeah. And you were probably the second and third person in history that actually Googled dialysis. <laughs> yeah. And these companies came up, Fresenius and Renal Care Group and Gambro from Switzerland. Um and I sat there and did a little research on it. I went back to my to to my colleague Jack Egan and said, "You ever done it?" And he he was from New York City, from Jamaica, New York. And he said, "Yeah, I used to be the CFO of a hospital that had it in the basement." You know, um, I'm not doing dialysis. It, the the okay. hospital was doing dialysis, yeah. and so we he knew a little bit about it. Um, and I literally started doing a little research. Um, a week later, 
My mother-in-law, Diane Blossom, calls mm-hmm. me and says that her father, Jim Hart, um, here in Paragould, <clears throat> was gonna, had heart surgery and his kidneys failed, and he was going to have to have dialysis. And she said, we're going to have to drive to Memphis. Chris, you're in the medical business. Can't you do something about this? And it was one of those moments. I'm telling you, it was literally a week or two apart that this had all been going on. And my, my kitchen table in Tampa was filled up with dialysis um, information. So, um, so I got on a plane, came to Paragould. Um, started doing a little research, went down to Jonesboro, met with a good friend of mine, Jack Harrington, who was uh, the COO of NEA uh, Clinic, back when it was just the clinic, not the hospital. And um, he hooked me up with a nephrologist, Mike Mackey, uh, down in Jonesboro. And I started doing some research. And uh, I went to the I went to Ron Rooney, the, the CEO here, and started kind of talking to them about, hey, is there some way we can get dialysis here in Paragould? I really hadn't made the connection yet, you know. Still not like you're thinking, I'm going to tie this in with the business. And, yeah. um, and then I, a, a, um, <clears throat> in my research, I realized that there was an industry meeting going on in Washington, D.C. a few weeks out. And I looked at the agenda, and most of it was clinical, but there was a couple of business uh, meetings going on in there. One of them was, was investing in dialysis. So, um, like all these things are starting to kind of line up. I picked, I, I found a nurse that I worked with at Jonesboro at the rehab hospital, Billy White. Billy used to be a dialysis nurse back early in her career. I said, Billy, I want to hire you to go to Washington, D.C. and uh, go to this meeting and take all the notes you can for two or three days. I'll pay for it. That's because you knew she was just going to understand everything more than you would. Yeah, I, was, I, yeah. I knew nothing about yeah, dialysis right. and didn't really want to know anything. And I, I flew to to um, I flew to, to Washington D.C. and I actually snuck in the back door without paying my six hundred or thousand dollars entry fee to get yep. into this. I'd already paid it for Billy. I wasn't going to pay sure, it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I walked into this meeting, and there was a young kid there that worked for a private equity, or excuse me, a, a hedge fund out in uh, California. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and he started off. There were eight or ten people in the room, and he said, "Listen, I own." Most of the debt in what was then Total Renal Care, a huge second largest dialysis, which is now DeVita, um, I own most of the debt in it. Um, I'm trying to figure out why their equity is not doing well. So I'm going to tell you everything I know about investing in dialysis. If y'all will tell me everything about the, the dialysis business, well, I'm in a perfect room because I'm sitting oh, in between the, the, these people. I sat there for a couple hours. When it was over with, I walked up to the guy, um, introduced myself, um, and said, um, you know, I'm kind of thinking about this a little bit, and here's all of the, the basic business tenets that, uh, that struck me from the beginning. <clears throat> walked out of the room. Um, two, three weeks later, called Rocky up and said, hey, I'm going to leave and going to go start up. I'd already, I'd already uh, by this time, I had already incorporated it in Delaware, um, and it called it U.S. Renal Care from the very beginning and said, I'm going to go start up a, a, a center. I came to Paragould, Arkansas. I worked out a deal with Arkansas Methodist Hospital. My center number one for U.S. Renal Care was at the old medical center out by the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, they had two or 3,000 square feet. 
Um, I went in there and I built the very first 12 uh, station center. And the very first patient was Tracy's grandfather. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What I, a I, cool it, story, man. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's, um, I tell this story nonstop. Couldn't have like, yeah, like <laughs> run the story any better than that, man. <laughs> he, he was our very first patient. And our, our second patient was George Allen Haynes from here in Paragon, which was a personal family friend of mine. And his kidney, kidneys had failed. And, uh, I, I knew nothing about the business. We literally took the first year just understanding the clinical side of it. Um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. So how did you, you obviously are a businessman. How did you get past all the legals? Like, what did you have to do without getting too technical? Like, in, kind of in layman's terms, like, in order to make this, like, a legit, like, <clears throat> medical outfit from scratch. Like, that's what blows my mind. It's like, I understand, like, you go start, like, a, a retail store or whatever. It's like, okay, whatever, but... You're not in the medical. I mean, you're in the medical world, but like, there's a lot to that. So, like, what are the? I mean, I go back to what I said before. It's people. I, people I hire. So, mm-hmm. I went to Mike Mackey. I needed a medical. I needed a nephrologist, medical director, and uh, Mike Mackey was in Jonesboro. St. Bernard's had just opened up their very first center in Jonesboro. You're just casting a vision of this thing, being like, "Look, we're going to start from the ground up. You're going to be a pioneer, man. This yeah. is going to work. Trust me." I said Mike, "Let's let's go do it." And 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 I think what I really told him is, is make sure we don't hurt patients. You know, I'm yeah. I, I'm the business guy. I'll figure out a way to rub a couple of pennies together. Yes, but I want you to run the the clinical part of it. Um, we found a, a nurse from here in Paragool that had worked for St. Bernard's for a couple of years, and she came over and was the manager. And Billy White, who I who I'd sent to DC from a clinical perspective, came and helped me set the whole Man. thing up. And so, so this was the networking part of it so important. Yeah, and this the was people all you'd the- built relationships with, built trust with, got to know. It's a perfect example of I knew nothing about any of that, but I went and found the right people yeah. and, and said, here's what I want to go do. And, and they put it all together. And so first year or two, we sat in Paragould, uh, figured the business out. Um, a lot of centers across the country were owned by nephrologists. Um, it's a business where, where physicians could still have uh, ownership um, from a regulatory standpoint. We went down to um, Pine Bluff and um, – uh, Dumas, Arkansas, and bought two centers uh, down there that a physician was not operating very well. Um, and I thought, okay, I, th- I think I know how to turn these around from a business standpoint because it was really just a business problem and immediately was able to do that. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. I think yeah. I got something mm-hmm. here. So I went and bought two more down in South Arkansas from another doctor, and the same thing happened. Mm. And then at, at this time, Jared, I, I had no intention, you know, even though I named it U.S. Renal Care, mm-hmm. I had no intention of being yeah. 600, 700, yeah, 700 centers. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was far Beyond your mind. imagination. Yeah. I, at this time, there were a lot of small companies doing what I was doing that were turning around and flipping it to the two or three very large uh, people out there. Um, but along the way, I kept hiring some really good people, and we were having a lot of fun. And... Um, so, again, Rocky Ortenzio, he's been in my life, business life from the beginning. Mm. And um, <clears throat> Rocky uh, ran a family office where they invested a lot of businesses. I went to Rocky and said, hey, I, can, I need – by this, I'd been doing all of this out of my back pocket um, and with a lot of loans. And so – and I, this, this is a good place to plug. Bill Fisher, I went to Bill very early on and said, I need money. And Bill says, I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, First National Bank, that was not that First National Bank's kind of thing. It's really the only two banks I had relationships with. Bill sent me down to Wallace Fowler, who was just starting up Bank of Jonesboro at the time. And I literally 
um, sat in Kentucky Fried Chicken's headquarters <laughs> of course. before they had their first bank open and pitched them on loaning me $7 million. Um, and um, Dina Osmond, who's still in Jonesboro, was mm-hmm. in the room. She had just gone to work for, for them. And um, Wallace had no reason to loan me money, <laughs> but he did. And that's how I got started. Wow. Was was with him. And so from there, Rocky came in. I asked him, told him we needed to raise some more money um, <clears throat> and ended up doing my very first uh, private equity raise um, with um, SV Life Sciences out of Boston and, and um, Golder Toma Cressy Roner out of Chicago. Mm. Raised $30 million. Did another $30 million bucks a year or two later, and we were kind of off and running, and it just didn't stop. And uh, so, basically, so over a you know over a twenty year career, you know, recapitalized the business three different times, which you're basically selling it. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, you're you're going in and selling it to a new set of private equity investors. Um, but you know, the last time that we we sold it, it was um, we were doing um, about a billion five in revenues. We were in 700 locations and we sold it for about $3 billion. It's incredible. And it started right here in Paragould. And it's a crazy story. Yeah. Um, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. Dude, yeah, growing up playing a little sandlot, <laughs> you know, shining some shoes, mowing some yards. Yeah. It, it, well, it's so great, man, because it's like, you know, these stories where you hear like, these successful business stories, like, it just feels so removed from daily life where most people are going to hear it and be like, those people are just different than me. And they are, there are some differences. Like there's not like, like not everyone's just like you, but like the, what I think is so beautiful about your story is people are able to look and be like, okay, like, no, like those are, these are people who truly like, yeah, there had to be some coincidences or whatever you want to call it or some luck along the way, but also it's just people who like, they're taking some risk. They're building some networks. They're, they're, they're building a team. Like they just have a vision and then they're acting on it. And then, it's just it's cool, man, to be able to 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 see, yeah, you to go from kind of where you are here to where you are today, and, yeah. and people that know me know that there's nothing special. But, mm-hmm. You know, it's literally. <clears throat> I think early on, I was willing to I was willing to 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 invest in myself. I was willing to take some risks. Um, I hired a lot of really good people, and I kept associating myself with the very best there were in the industry. Um, you know, and, and, you know, listen, success begets success. hundred percent. Cause you can't, here's the thing. Like you can't get around, like I'm thinking like some people listen to this are probably like, yeah, good for you. You're able to get around the best, but the best don't want to be around me. You know what I'm saying? And so oh, the there best is, are searching for you. Hmm. I promise you. I, I, you know, say more about that. What do you mean? Yeah. So, you know, I work with five or six private equity groups right now. They're, they're the biggest and the best in, in, in the world. And, um, <clears throat> um, I'm one of the guys, um, that they're they're looking for people like me to find investment opportunities out there because they know that their world doesn't collide to Paragould, Arkansas every time, mm. or doesn't collide in 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 Arkansas all the time, and so they they're constantly looking for those for those kinds of opportunities. Um, and you know, hey, there's a little bit of sophistication, but it, it just comes with experience, right? It's not there's mm. nothing special about it. It's it's just experience. Yeah, the sophistic- um, that's that's really good. That that was kind of a learned thing through experience. It's not like you grew up like sitting around the dinner table at your house, setting up properly, talking about all of these different equations and business principles and things like that. You went to school, learned some there, but probably learned a 
whole lot more through the experience. Yeah, so it's it's instant instinct. Yeah. So you know, I, I work with a lot of young people that that work for these private equity guys that are all Wharton graduates, Harvard graduates, Stanford Business School graduates, yeah. and they're extremely technical. So they want to talk about mm-hmm. you know all the technical aspects of of what's going on in the business, but they don't have the business instincts yet. And so, <clears throat> you know. Um, so I've had the opportunity to raise a lot of money in my career, uh, both in debt and equity. Um, in the last deal that we did with Bank Capital at, at U.S. Renal Care, we borrowed $2.6 billion. Mm. Um, <clears throat> before that, we had raised a couple of times, a couple of billion dollars each a couple of different times. Mm. And you don't, but you don't do that by going down to your local bank and borrowing that. It takes a whole syndicate of banks. And it requires... Um, doing bank meetings and bank and bank um, <clears throat> one-on-one meetings around mm-hmm. the country. So one of the things that's always funny is, and it and it's happened very recently to me, even though I'm I'm kind of you know running these circles a little bit more, is that when you go to a bank meeting, they're always in New York. It's mm-hmm. always in a room with hundred plus investors, large hedge funds, big banks whoever it is, and they're there to hear your story all at one time, run through a slide deck over the business and be able to ask some questions. And if they have an interest, they're going to set up meetings with you. Mm. Well, when I get introduced and when I start talking, people just sit there and look at me and kind of twist their head. And they're thinking, what country is he? From? <laughs> <laughs> and I always yeah. have to joke about it. I go, you know, yeah. Hey, I'm from Arkansas, by the yeah. way. And so let's talk about the people from Arkansas. That are, from that, Sam Walton. That's exactly yeah. right. And uh, J.B. Hunt yeah, and yeah. the Stevens and everybody yeah. else. So everybody get the smirk off their that's face. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not as big of idiots as you think we are. Right. Yeah. But, it, but what you figure out is, again, it's, it's, it's just, it's just the, the experience. It's, that's it. Oh, that's um, you can take anyone from, from, you know, any of these, anyone from, any of these small businesses, if you have a if you have a business idea that is scalable, that's probably the hardest thing. By the way, so what do you mean? Like, say more of that for those who are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so you know, um, we all know that there are fantastic businesses out here, right? I mean, sure. <clears throat> we have retailers up and down the street that sure. have done a fantastic job. But can you take one of these businesses that is on Main Street in Perryville, Arkansas, and turn it into 700 locations? Is there a market for it? Yes, okay. Yep. In dialysis, it's a $130 billion a year market. So to, so to carve out a billion five in revenues is a small percentage mm-hmm. of the whole thing. But selling widgets, the market may only be $100 million, So you can't, you're never going to be a billion-dollar company in a $100 million market. The hardest thing to do is, is to find that industry – <clears throat> that is that that's scalable in size and find a business that's scalable that makes sense to get bigger because not mm-hmm. all businesses are better bigger mm-hmm. you know um, some things are meant to be small mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. meant to be intimate mm-hmm. um, so that the hardest part of this is that is that part um, finding the right space after that there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help you to kind of mm-hmm. get it across the finish line that's all that's super encouraging you know you talked about you you sold uh, U.S. Renal Care. <clears throat> After that, did you know that you were going to go take the path that you took, or what was the next step? No. So when when we recapped the business with Bank Capital, um, you know, my intent was to stick around, but but I felt like I was kind of getting to the end. You know, twenty two years in a company, you really do need kind of new blood, new ideas, new energy. Um, my group that it, 
my executive group had been with me probably an average of 14 or 15 years. Everybody was just a little bit burned out. So I could kind of feel that it was the end. Um, but about eight or nine months into it, I went to Bain Capital and said, hey, listen, I think we need to, we need to transition me out. Um, <clears throat> they wanted to keep me on the board. I wanted to get off. Just I, I just felt like I, I wanted to get away from the dialysis space completely. I left Dallas, Texas, where our, where our offices were on February the 12th of 2020. Mm. Do you know what happened in March yeah. of 2020? Mm-hmm. COVID. Mm-hmm. So COVID in the dialysis space was, that's probably one of the most serious, outside of being on an inpatient hospital business, dialysis was probably number two because you have the very sickest of the sickest patients that are inside these dialysis centers and are have multiple comorbidities going on, um, have multiple illnesses. Um, you know, it's a it's a business that, that that has a lot of fluids with it, and you know everything else. And so everything's working against it. Um, I left two weeks before that happened. Now I got drugged back into it for a couple of months, um, trying to kind of help them figure mm-hmm. everything out a little bit. But other than that, my 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 two kids came home. My daughter came home from Chicago. Mm-hmm. My son came home from Fayetteville. We kind of. Mm. huddle up in the house it was it was it was a blessing to tracy and i our kids were never supposed to live under the same roof again <laughs> and we got them for a yeah, year that's um, cool man. great it, timing oh it was cool and so uh i thought i was home and i thought i was gonna be playing golf and mm-hmm. I, I i sat on a couple of boards of other companies mm-hmm. at that time <clears throat> and uh, i get a phone call from my old investor my second uh Largest investor, uh, Leonard Green Partners out of Los Angeles, called me up and said, hey, we're looking at the mental health space. You want to help us? And that's kind of what they do. They look for people like me to kind of help them look at other stuff, try to figure out is it is it something we're interested in. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And so we went and... Um, we went and looked at a at a, a what's now a public company, Life Stance, about buying it, and decided not to buy it because at the time no one was convinced that COVID was not mm-hmm. going to significantly have a significant impact, mm-hmm. bigger impact than what it had. Than mm-hmm. what it had. <clears throat> um, we looked at a second company, and then um, um, uh, another another private equity group out of New York, Center Bridge Partners, um, had purchased a business on the West Coast called Community Psychiatry, which was a psychiatry business. And they came to me and to LGP and said, hey, let's let's all be partners. And um, so I entered into this deal as an investor um, and as a board member. And the role that I usually am asked to play on these boards <clears throat> is translator. Because of the history that I had, kind of coming from, from, you know, from the beginning and starting something up, all the way to a pretty large, you know, healthcare services company. A lot of these private equity guys are looking for someone for operators or for former executives to sit on the board to translate between the private equity groups on what their needs are to the management teams. Because a lot of these management teams are just like me. They've, they've never done this before. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> the role I play is kind of that middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I did for the first three or four months. Um, our CEO was out of uh, was out of California, and he had realized that this was going to be a little bit bigger deal than what he thought he was interested in. Mm. He stepped aside. They asked me if I would step in, and um, and I did. Two years ago, two and a half years ago. Wow. Yeah. And so, how much time are you putting into that? 
What's well, so? Because you're doing that, that and the, and the horses, which haven't gotten to yet. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. That's, <laughs> so, so I sat on a couple a couple of boards, um, and I helped I helped two or three other private equity groups look at deals, and so I'm constantly looking at, at investments. This is a full time. This is an okay. eighty hour a week job, but I'm in the process of transitioning out of it. So, um, so um, we've gone from a um, hundred clinicians in California to about a thousand clinicians wow. in eight states over a two-year period of time. All, and all of this during COVID, all of this when virtual care, um, we have 130 offices of which only maybe 25 or 30 have people in them because <clears throat> patients have realized that mental health care lends itself very well to virtual care. Mm-hmm. Um, so patients actually going back into therapist's office or to psychiatrist's mm-hmm. office is probably going to shrink uh, permanently for a long sure. time. For sure. But we've built this entire company during that period when we don't have a home office. We don't have an administrative office. So my executives are all the way from California to Boston to, to Florida. Different world. Isn't very it? different world. Very tough. It's very tough right now. Um, so, um, Again, I, I, I've recently gone to them. I'm going to take on the chairman role uh, there, which is just it, – it'll be an active role, but but it'll be much more strategic rather than try to keep the trains running every yeah. day, which gets to be tough. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And so you're doing that so sort of two years ago. Did the – the breeding and, and training these cutting horses, did that start before <laughs> that? Has that been like a hobby? Is that still just a hobby, or is that like something oh, you're yeah. actually <laughs> – where, where is that in the mix? <laughs> so it's a full-time job. Um, so, you know, my, my son, John, um, Tyner McCuller and Brent McCuller uh, here in Paragould, uh, Gina McCuller, uh, when they were growing up, they were all big buddies, Tyner and, and John. And, and, and Brent had his two kids in the cutting horse business. Um, and Brent asked John when he was literally seven or eight years old to go on a weekend show with him. And he did it two or three times. Um, and I got, a, I got a, a video one day of him being introduced into a show ring in Batesville, Mississippi on a horse, which blew me away. Blew Tracy away, particularly. She didn't matter. <laughs> um, and so, John, the bug bit John big time. And so, um, Tracy and I, both of us had been around horses, had ridden horses. We had never, neither one of us had ever owned a horse. Tracy's father had, as a young man, had competed in horses. Mm. He's about as close as we got. We ended up uh, buying some some horses and, you know, John is an absolute natural talent mm. with horses. Um, and really quickly, he started becoming very successful. Mm. And so there's, there's kind of two levels to, to, horse, to competing in the cutting horses, what they call kind of weekend shows. So you're mm. traveling all around the country on weekend shows, and then there's what's called limited-aged events where you're only competing with four-year-old, five-year-old, and six-year-old horses. Much bigger productions. Shows will last anywhere from two weeks to six weeks long. Wow. We... John started competing in those and immediately started having some success. Um, Mm. He's just a natural. And that's where it all started. That was back with, um, gosh, that was back, uh, uh, how old is John? John's 23 years old. It was 14 years ago. Wow. Uh, Very first, you'll like this, the very first cutting horse I bought was off of Daryl Dale, which is Kimberly's dad. Wow. 
Yeah. Small world. Still, I'm still on it. Actually, Daryl has it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Still That's has really it. cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, so um, we got super lucky uh, along the way. Um, we bought, we have four foundational broodmares in our program right now. <clears throat> um, the first two... Uh, smooth as a cat and high driven hickapoo uh, were horses that John competed on in the in the uh, uh, in the aged events with a lot of success. He won amateur um, amateur of the year uh, when he was fourteen years old, fifteen years old. So the kid was making a couple hundred thousand bucks a year competing in in cutting horses. It's wild. Um, I ended up buying a couple of other uh, horses. They were actually full sisters, a year apart. Um, that ended up being two very famous mares in the industry. Um, Sweet really? little Amanda and Amanda C D. Um I mean you say famous, like just like in that in that, in that world they people knew. In that world they know who they are yeah, now. They are. At the time, you know, um, I bought Sweet Little Amanda to sell in Fort Worth. Um, and she later um, you know, she later earned about three hundred thousand dollars in earnings and and, and was um, Where does the money come from? Like when they're earning this, because like in my mind, I'm like, I understand like with an or an athlete, like a basketball player or something, like how they earn their money. But like, <clears throat> I'd never even heard of cutting horses until this morning. Like, where's the money coming from? That's you know, that people are winning the money from. Yeah, so it's 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 entry fees, and so I'll give you an example. We just okay. we just finished up with the Super Stakes in Fort Worth just two two three weeks ago. There were over 1,200 horses competing for six weeks down there. Um, and you're talking about entry fees of three, four thousand dollars per okay. horse. Um, so that's kind of great. But then there's also a lot of sponsorship. So it's just like rodeo. It's just it's it's PBR. It's okay. exactly the same thing, except it's just the National Cutting Horse Association instead of Pro Rodeo. That's great. That's cool. Um, so um, I got lucky with these two mares. Uh, the, the second one, the second sister, I actually um, bought a year later, um, and she ended up um, being a literally came down to a single show to winning horse of the year, which is a big deal in that industry. And uh, so now we, we have those four brood mares as kind of our foundation. And these are the these are the horses that you'll see like out on your property, right? Like if you drive by or no? So two of these mares live in Paragould. The two sisters do not. They live in Weatherford, Texas with our trainer uh, okay. down there. <clears throat> uh, but what you see out in our pasture is um, in the cutting horse business and the quarter horse business, you can actually artificially inseminate horses. Unlike in the thoroughbred business, you have to live cover horses and they have to carry. So in my world, <clears throat> I have a mare, uh, a show mare that's, that, that, that's valuable, okay, um, and has won a lot of money. Um, I pick a stud. Mm -hmm. I artificially inseminate the mare with that, with the, with the stud. <clears throat> Eight days later, we do, an, we do an ultrasound. We find a live embryo. We flush the embryo out. We flash freeze it, send it to Texas A&M to be tested for diseases or for... And are y'all doing this part here in Paragold? No. Okay. All, all right. this stuff is in breeding barns all this stuff in, is in okay. Texas. Okay. Um, and then when, when, the embry when you have a good viable embryo, you bring it back and you can then, um, you can then put it in, in a surrogate mother, okay? Which means that each mare can have two or three babies a year if you want them to because you're going to turn around and, and flush them and then rebreed them again and rebreed them again. What you see in my pastures is is all those surrogate mothers. So every year we bring up ten or twelve surrogate mothers that are carrying all of these babies. We follow them all out in Paragol. We had a fall two days ago, gorgeous uh, baby in the middle of the night, uh, just two days ago. 
we'll have anywhere usually between eight and ten babies a year. The babies and the mamas live in our back pasture back there until it's time for them to um, get weaned. And then when they get weaned at eight or ten months, um, we split the boys and the girls up in the front pasture. So when you go to see my front pastures in front of the house, one side is, is the fillies and the other side's the stud colts. And that's where they live for another year and a half until they get to be two years old. And then they get shipped down to Texas to our trainer, Matt, um, Matt Miller. Actually, Matt's from Jonesboro originally. Oh. And, um, and uh, we train them. So, we, so in, in Texas, um, I try not to keep up with this number, but pro- we probably have 16 to 20 horses in Texas right now in training. Um, and so we'll train them and we'll sell them, yeah. and then we'll compete. We usually try to keep two four-year-olds, two five-year-olds, and two six-year-olds going. So I usually have six horses that are competing. And then John John went to college, lost interest in cutting horses a little bit, was on the equine team at Arkansas for a year. Um, but John's kind of getting back into it now. So John goes down. Um, the pro rides our horses and competes at a pro level. And then John will come in from a non-pro standpoint, and he'll compete on them and put and put some money on them also. <laughs> That's excellent. You just learned all this stuff over the years. You had a ten or twelve. John years. got interested in it. And you're like, all right, I'm gonna. So, I mean, you got back on Google, didn't you? Like, I mean, again, <laughs> I literally, uh, Matt Miller is one of the top trainers in the world. I have gotten to know the very top trainers in the world in Fort Worth. Just pick their brain, learn all this stuff. And it's the people I associate. Yes. It goes back to the same thing. That's 100%. It's, it's, it's the people that you associate with. If, if you want to compete at the highest level and you got to show up at the highest level and you got to start hanging out with them and acting like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's <laughs> excellent. Is that somewhat of a hobby for you, like a stress reliever or not really? No, no, we love it. We okay. love it. Now, so Tracy really, if you if she was here, she, she runs the business. There's no That's doubt cool. about that. Um, I, Tracy and John don't want to sell anything. So I literally kind of have to run the sell side of it <laughs> because if I come and tell them that, Hey, I've got a, I've got someone that wants to, to buy this or buy that or whatever else immediately, it's all the reasons why not to do that. <laughs> so I have to kind of do it and say, Hey, by the mm-hmm. way, I sold that one two weeks ago. <laughs> and then we don't talk for a day or two. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, but it's yeah, it's it, it's it's absolutely a hobby. We love it. It's it's we're out there every day. We're we're out with the babies and and yeah. uh, raising babies is pretty special. That's really cool. You've made that area just. I mean, it's a great place just to even drive by. I mean, the fence you put up and the the barn that you kept. Uh, that's, that's Fred Swindle. Oh, really? So that was Fred Swindle's home place. So the little I didn't know the that. old barn that's there. And Fred Swindle, for those who don't know, he started Red Book, correct? That was eventually. Sold to Telephora. That's right. So Fred Swindle was born on that property. There was a little white house right behind where the old barn was, <clears throat> and um, uh, I, we knew what, we knew what we wanted to build, um, and I knew that that was what I really wanted. Fred tried to sell me the forty north of me, um, and um, and I had agreed to it, but I really wanted this 80. And that was real. the 80 that I'm on right now is really his home place. And so mm. I literally picked Fred up one day and got him in the truck, and we drove out in the middle of that 80 acres where my house sits right now. And I said, Fred, <clears throat> I'm trying to build a place for my family, and I want something that you'd be proud of and that someone's going to mm. be here for a long time, and here's what I'm going to do. And he said, you know what, let me, let me call a little family meeting tonight. And he called Gina up, and he got – Martha Jean together, and they called me up that night, and they said, we're going to sell it to you. Mm. Yeah. 
That's really cool, man. Yeah, it's it's. I, I, listen, once I've again, casting the vision for it, man. Yeah, well, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a salesperson. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. That's a really cool story. I'm glad you told that. I didn't know know that part of it, but it is like you know, our kids. We used to live in Carriage Hills. We're not there anymore, but we would drive to drop our kids off at the primary, and even our kids always enjoyed going by there, and you'd see the horses. And so, anyways, super glad y'all have that property, and you're doing that. There's so many more questions I want to be able to ask you, but I want to respect your time. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and move us into some rapid fire questions if you're ready for that. Sure. And so, sure. all right, here we go. Uh, what is either the last show or movie you watched or book that you read? Oh, my gosh. Um, the, the last – I haven't watched movies or, or – um, <clears throat> I, I, You don't have time to do any of that stuff probably. Well, I just I'm not a I'm not a movie guy. I'm not a movie and TV guy much. Or Tracy and I are on to these a lot of these shows these days. But uh, um, gosh, Jared, I, that's a hard one for me. I, I'd have to, I wasn't ready for that one. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I told you they were going to be easy, and it's like no, no, no so much. I'll, we, we can come back to that one. Uh, here's one that's not even on this list, but I know that you travel quite a bit for work. Can you think of since you couldn't think of that one? Can you think of um, favorite place you've been that you've traveled to? Yeah, so that's that's a hard one too because I've I've been fortunate to travel all over the world and I travel travel all over the country uh, mm-hmm. over the last fifteen twenty years. Um, you know, I'm a mountains guy. Um, we always we always had businesses in in Colorado and in Utah mm-hmm. and in Montana, and so if if I had to if if I was going to ever which I would never leave Paragould, but if I was ever going to leave Paragould, it would it would probably be heading out to the mountains someplace where. My family's headed to Italy here in a couple of weeks, so, and that's another one of our favorites. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested in this. This is not a rapid-fire question, but you talked about you would never leave Paragould, and I think that's pretty special, the fact that you could literally live anywhere in the world back. that you wanted. You came back. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it was simple. Um, having, ex- having experience in Houston, and uh, Tracy was a teacher, and having experience in Tampa, um, we wanted our kids raised in Paragould, Arkansas. There was not a question. And so it required me to travel a lot. Um, you know, our, our home offices were in Dallas. Um, mm. You know, we had 1,000 employees in, in an office down there. So I, was, I, I had a condo in Dallas, and I traveled all over the country mm. uh, nonstop. But we wanted our kids raised in Paragol. Very cool. It's yeah. so a great place to raise kids. Yep. All right, here we go. Favorite band. <laughs> See, I'm Are you horrible. music? I'm Do you listen horrible. to music? Yeah, I listen to music. <laughs> okay, so, you got gosh. it. <laughs> So I'm probably I'm probably an old school like an Eagles. Yeah, uh, yeah. the most popular <laughs> the most popular choice it seems like. Yeah, See, I never, Whiskey it, Myers would probably be my my son's kind of turned uh, me on to some of these yeah, new Whiskey stuff. Myers, Whis- yeah, 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 Whiskey Myers. Yeah, yeah. We uh, Ryan Bingham a lot of one of, of our stuff. worship leaders here is a Whiskey Myers fan. Um, I never could get into the Eagles. So if there was well, one song, ah, uh, I know, but there's young people that I'm friends with that love the Eagles. So if there's one song that could possibly turn me on to them, do you have one that comes to mind like an Eagle song? Because oh, I'm gonna write California. Yeah, I've listened to it. That's usually what everybody tells me. <laughs> Seven Bridges Roads is also. Okay, I've not listened to it. Oh, yeah, Seven Bridges Road. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to write that down here. Yeah. I really want to like them because I feel like everybody that I like likes the Eagles. So I want to be able to have like that, that mutual connection. You're young. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite meal? Oh, Italian. Okay. I'm, a, I'm an Italian guy. What are you going sure. to You're about to go to Italy and really get the good I know. I'm, I'm so what's like the Italian meal? You're, what's a go to? Oh, like Parmesan. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, what is on your nightstand right now? 
You know, I'm, I'm, I listen to some podcasts here and there. Um, you know, I really, I, I'm, I'm telling you for the last year and a half, two years, I've been so wrapped up in mind path that, uh, it's, I'm working at 10 o'clock at night and, and not reading much. I'm embarrassed to say that, but yeah. Yeah. yeah that's okay. That's all right, man. <laughs> it seems to be working for you. So, yeah. um, Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Just an ordinary moment that brings you great joy. Oh, I think, you know, my, I'm a family person, you know, and so, you know, having my two kids uh, together is really special. Um, John just came back from Fayetteville. Mary Catherine just moved from Chicago to Fayetteville about a year ago. And I think just any of the time that, that we get to spend together is really special for us now. It's, you know, our kids are getting older. You know, it's, you know how it is. You just don't, you just don't get that family time together. Yeah. Um, so. We talk about this uh, frequently during this portion of the podcast, but, you know, I've got a friend that works in, uh, he's a hospice director in Kentucky. And mm-hmm. he, he told me before, I was like, asked him, I said, Caleb, what have you learned from working with people who are dying? Like, you've been dying people all the time. He's like, the stuff that we roll our eyes at are the stuff they usually wish they could go back and relive. So it's not like, you know, <clears throat> the money, the vacations, all that's great, but it's like, I wish I could go back and push my kid in a swing again. You know, oh, yeah. or I wish it's like, I'd love to be able to relive that moment. And so it's just, yeah, it's just cool to hear people, even those who, no matter what walk of life we're in, it's usually around family. So um, last question, what is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously grateful for my family. I mean, they, you know, my family has put up with this whole story, um, and I have been an absent father for a lot of that. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing that I'm thankful for this community because I'm a product of exactly what this community stands for. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are so many stories like mine. It may not may not be of quite the same size, um, but there are so many stories out of Paragould and so many friends that I have that have come out of Paragould that have had <clears throat> so much success and they're very normal people and, and have had success personally, uh, not just in a business perspective, but just personal success. Mm-hmm. I think that comes from Paragould. I, I really do. I think it's, this place is a... This place is a, is a cool place to, to grow up and to live. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's a great place for us to end. So, Chris, thanks so much for coming yeah. on. really enjoy getting to spend time with you. Thanks, Jared. And Chris Brengard has left the building. A lot of big takeaways from that uh, podcast. you got to take risk, and you have got to build a good team around you. That yeah. seems to be the secret to success, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kept reiterating having people smarter than him around him. Yeah, so which takes humility, yeah. I think, to be able to say, I don't know everything, yeah. uh, but I'm going to find someone who can teach and that I can learn from and apply what I've learned. So, Chris, thanks so much for making space to be here. And if you're still listening, thanks for tuning in. Um, if you've not already done so, please go check us out on the different social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. You can follow us there. We're going to have some giveaways coming uh, out very soon, right? Uh, Some restaurant gift cards. You'll learn more about that later. And so follow us on social media. Um, And if you've not done so, please go to Spotify. Give us a five-star rating there. You can go to Apple um, and you can give us a five-star rating uh, there as well. That just helps people to find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people living right here in Paragould. So as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.